Loving Heavenly Father, we do praise and thank you for your written and inspired word, the Bible. And Father, may it be uh, food to us today. I'm conscious, Lord, as we pray and come together around your word, Lord, of the challenging nature of this message and the sense of my inadequacy in dealing with it. Nevertheless, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work among us and challenge us where we need to be challenged and to encourage us and to lift up those who are low and to um, bring us all together around your word to hear you speak to us today. For we ask, Lord, that you'll do that through your written word, not, for the, not through the speaker. For we ask it, Father, in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Some people may have noticed that we've gone back to the book of James. Um, last November, I said we would do a short series in the book of James. Um, it was Janine, actually, who said to me, I was looking forward to, to it, but we have a wonderful group of people who have offered to speak, and we have given them the opportunity to choose whether they want to use the selected passage or not. So that's why we didn't continue in the series in James. But given the opportunity to speak this morning, I thought we'd go back to the book of James. And uh, in doing so, I just want to remind you of the setting, the original context into which it was written. If you have a Bible and you want to look at it, you can. But in chapter 1, verse 1, James says that this letter is written to the 12 tribes who are scattered throughout the world. They are Jewish Christians who have come to the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And for whatever reasons, persecution likely, they've become refugees out in the world and they're trying to find their way and how they fit into a new environment. And in doing so, the problem is this, they're starting to compromise their faith in Jesus Christ in order to get ahead, in order to climb the social ladder or the way that we structure things in the world, they're compromising and they're starting to do things the way that the world does things. In our passage, the problem here is what they're doing is that they are beginning to show favoritism. And so it starts out in our passage by saying this, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. When I was uh, growing up, I remember my mum saying to me, now, if you ever get married and have children, whatever you do, don't have favorites. And, uh, well, I took that on board. Um, but this is not kind of how the word favorite is, what the word favorite means here. And it's important to understand what this word means. To have a favorite does not mean I like you or I don't like you. It kind of means we make a very quick, superficial, surface judgment on people and then decide very quickly uh, whether we like them or we don't like them. I mean, there must be some science on this. We can probably do it in a minute or, one, or two minutes. I don't like how tall you are. I don't like, I don't like the look on your face. I don't like the fact that you've got long hair. I don't like the fact that, oh, I don't know, uh, you haven't shaved for a couple of weeks. Uh, or some, actually, I shouldn't tell you this, 
when I was 21, I had a girlfriend, and I shouldn't have gone out with her. She wasn't a Christian, and uh, I was just getting to know her, and um, I remember her mother standing in front of me, squinting at me like this, and, and I had a pretty good moustache going on at the time. She looked at me like, and, like this, and she said, I don't like men who have facial hair. And, and she said, any man who grows a beard is trying to hide something. And she had separated from her husband. I didn't need to ask questions, but I suspect he had a beard. I had to call the relationship off. Um, it was rather ironic because I just couldn't trust the girl, and she didn't have a beard. <laughs> and uh, it just goes to show that you just got to be careful. But um, the thing is, it's not a matter of being careful. See, I want to take you back to the passage because it doesn't kind of say how we think, oh, we all do it, right? We all kind of judge people superficially on the surface. As soon as we meet them, we make judgments. It's not kind of saying, oh, you shouldn't do it. You see what it says? It says you must not do it. You must not show this kind of favoritism. This is, this is aimed at all of us who claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We must not make quick superficial judgments on people by what we see on the face of things. We might get to a point where we understand people, well, I can't trust them, I can't, but we shouldn't do that to start with. This passage, uh, this verse and all of the passages, the most difficult one to translate out of the original language. And you'll get this if you compare different translations. Some of them say this a lot more strongly. And what we want to know this morning is how, how does God view this? Not so much what was James saying to the original audience, but as the inspired word of God, what is God saying to us out of it? How seriously does he take this? In one of the more literal translations, and, and it's a bit scary and unsettling, in the New Revised Standard Version, it says something like this. Do you, and it poses it as a question, more as a statement, do you with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We know this, that James is very strong on faith and actions working together. And he borders on, he pushes it right to the edge and kind of says, if you judge people that way, if you make those kind of distinctions, are you really believing in Jesus? Or is it something that you just say? Because faith and actions at the end of the chapter can't be separated. They must go together. So we're asking the question from here on, how serious does this get? How serious is the issue of us allowing ourselves to slip into the ways of the world, the way we've been cultured, the way we're, we think about other people? How seriously does God take it, us showing favoritism? And so James tells this account, we, the story. We don't know if this is actually going on with these 12 tribes who are scattered throughout the world or not, but he says this, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. What are you going to do when you see them walk in the door? You've got one minute or two minutes to make a judgment. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the more poor man, you stand over there, 
or sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and made a quick judgment and become judges with evil thoughts? The word meeting there or gathering in some translations is the word synagogue. We don't know if it is actually talking about a Jewish synagogue or not. It's a gathering. It could be. If it is, then there's a wide uh, variety of Jews in this meeting, not just Christians. At this time, they met together. And we suspect what was going on with the original audience is when they came in, they went, oh, man, I need a job, and I want a good-paying job, and I can see a rich man there who looks like he runs a business. Oh, come and sit here. And there's a poor person. Well, uh, you're no use to me, so I'll put you down there. This is how they were working, and that is why James says to them that you are practicing evil thoughts. The idea of using people on the basis of what you see on the surface of things is considered evil in the passage. We may not do it. Well, we don't do it here do we, in church here in our gathering? We don't have the best seats for the best people and the worst seats for the worst people. So, well, maybe it doesn't affect us. But out in the world, imagine this, because I've seen it and I've been in it in workplaces. Um, We're in a workplace. Everybody wants to please the boss because he pays the money in the account at the end of the working week. And you imagine sharing a smoko room together and the boss comes in and how it got there, I don't know, but there's a comfortable single seat there and there's other bench seats around the smoko table and the boss comes in and you're a Christian. Oh, Mr. Jones, uh, can I get you a cup of tea? Here's your seat. And a new worker has started on the job. They're the cleaner and they make the cup of tea. And uh, the previous one used to have smoko out in their car. And uh, they approach you, by chance, as a Christian, and say, oh, um, I'm new, Uh, I'm the cleaner, I make the tea, Uh, where can I sit? And uh, imagine saying to them, whatever you do, don't sit in Mr. Jones' seat. And the previous um, person who did your job, they had their smoker out in their car, and, uh, well, we haven't really got room here, it's just the culture of the company. Um, maybe just have smoke out in your car. Is that making a distinction or a discrimination, an act of favoritism or not? Something for us to think about in the real world, in the places where we work or where we study or wherever life finds us. Do we make these kind of distinctions? You know, um, Another reason that's going to come up in our passage as to why this is so wrong to show favoritism and to discriminate amongst people is because, you know, God chooses the people who feel, by the way society works, that they've been put on the bottom for no reason uh, but it could be how they look, the color of their skin, how much they earn. For some reason or other, they feel that society has put them on the bottom. They are the people who are rich in faith. They are the people who are most likely to make a decision for Jesus Christ because the world hasn't given them hope. 
It hasn't given them the hope that the high people feel they have in earning money and climbing a ladder and being a CEO in a company or having great qualifications or good looks. They're usually the kind of people, and I shouldn't generalize, but when I've seen people attack Christianity, it doesn't come from where I think it does. And so James points this out. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? They are the ones who are most responsive to the gospel and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? When I um, first started work, and that's where I became a Christian, and I spent three years working in a factory, and um, we employed people on the bottom of the ladder, and I was on the bottom of the ladder too, and it did me no harm. In fact, that was one of the most enjoyable times in my working life. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> we had a, <clears throat> quite a range of people, Pacific Island, Maori, Pakia, and a few other people, mainly from South America. And, you know, <clears throat> I was surprised to find how many people had a faith in Jesus Christ amongst those people. And I wouldn't have thought that. I wouldn't have thought that. And I would have thought that Christianity maybe belonged to people who were middle class sort of thing. But these were the people who had faith in Jesus Christ. And even those who said, no, I don't want to know about Jesus, never spoke against the gospel in a negative way. They were always respectful, always careful and cautious with the gospel, even if they didn't believe it. It wasn't until I started climbing the ladder, so to speak, and getting qualifications and going into better jobs, that it was the people in the top seat. It was people in key positions who, not everyone, I'm, this is, I'm not generalizing, but it was those people who would come out really strongly and sometimes aggressively against the gospel if they knew you were a Christian. And I had that a few times and I proved that that's quite right. So for that reason in itself, it's wrong to discriminate it's wrong to have favorites of people just by what you see on the surface without getting to know people. It gets more serious than this, I'm afraid to say, in regards to how God sees it. And James enters now into like a legal kind of uh, case or argument about how serious uh, favoritism is in God's eyes. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which is integral to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're doing what is right. That's what God expects. We're not talking about some kind of legalistic kind of earn your way to heaven. But if we have faith in Jesus Christ, it must be accompanied by actions and works. For faith without works is dead. We are called to love our neighbor as yourself. So to have favorites or to discriminate on the surface of things, it's not good. But if you do happen to show favoritism, this is where James goes with it. He basically says it's a sin. 
you see that there in verse 9? It's a, it's a sin to make a surface judgment on people and not give them a chance to get to know them and find out something about them. And if we sin by showing favoritism, we become convicted as if we were lawbreakers. That's a pretty serious thing. As I said before, and I just want to point this out, um, I've had to wrestle with this for a week. And uh, I feel really bad because I'm not high-horsed in my thinking. I become convicted quite quickly, and others might too, and I'm just sensitive to that. Um, But boy, it was a challenge in just preparing for this morning for me. And so I don't want to come across as this is to me as much as it is to all of us. If we show favoritism, it's a sin. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. The implication, I think, is clear enough is that favoritism in God's eyes before a holy God is on par with adultery and murder. only takes one hole to sink a ship. God views it that seriously. I, uh, in my family... I have uh, four generations of English Quakers um, from about the year 1800 to 1870. And I don't know if you know anything about the Quakers. They're not big in New Zealand. They aren't what they used to be. But the Quakers, the thing that they were most known for is that they had a level playing field as far as everyone was equal. No one was above anyone else. And when uh, George Fox, who started the Quakers, uh, began, he was living in a society that was built or structured on a hierarchy where if you saw someone in the street who held a high position, uh, like a magistrate or uh, something like this, you were expected to tip your hat to them. Um, uh, If they weren't and they're just a common person, well, you didn't tip your hat to them. But there are certain people that you expected to show courtesy and to tip your hat to. And as simple as that may seem, George Fox ended up before a magistrate for not tipping his hat. And uh, George Fox quoted somewhere from Isaiah where he said, I basically tremble at the word of the Lord, and so should the magistrate, because all of us are equal. And the magistrate tried to turn it on him, and you should be the one who's trembling or quaking. And apparently that's one idea of how the word Quaker came about. But Quakers, they, they did not show any difference between the high or the low. They took the word of God like passages like this seriously and challenged their culture with it, even to the point where they stood out and got in trouble for it. They took it so far that even death, in death, there was no one who was higher than anyone else. Let me show you this. I can't help myself. Um, can you tell which one is the Quaker cemetery? They have their own cemeteries. The one down the bottom there, you know, I don't know, maybe the big tall monument over someone's grave was a, a magistrate or somebody who, you know, enjoyed, 
George Fox's day, you may have tipped your hat to, but with Quakers, your headstone was this size by that side with no deviations. Originally, they never had headstones, but they took it seriously. Everyone was equal. There was to be no distinctions, no favoritism. They applied the Bible to life in a real way that got them into trouble, but it challenged the predominant culture of the day. It goes a bit further. Speak and act as if you are those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as if what Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves could be a measure against us. I feel really uncomfortable with that. Because, you know, for me, and I'll maintain it, by God's grace you are saved through faith and not by works. But James just seems to push it right to the limit. Act as if God takes this really seriously because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. It's not as if this doesn't accord with Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where he says, Blessed are the merciful in this life, for they will be shown mercy on that day. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. In the last sentence, that is often taken out of context to overturn everything that's just been said. That God's mercy will triumph over judgment. But you know what? And I'm not alone in this. Some people say, you know, I think what this passage is actually saying in the last sentence is, the practice of our Christian faith in showing mercy will unlock God's mercy towards us in Christ on the day of judgment. It has just as much to do with our mercy triumphing over the judgment. Um for the life to come. Again, I feel really uncomfortable with that, but I'm just trying to be true and faithful to the text. In conclusion, let's just go back for an application to the smoko setting around the smoko table. When Mr. Jones comes in and he's got his comfortable seat over there, rather than saying, oh, Mr. Jones, can I get you your comfortable seat and get you a cup of tea? We need to respect those who are our bosses, so we might just stand out of the way and, hi, Mr. Jones, as he walks by, and show him respect. And the person who's the new cleaner, we might give them, say, a couple of options. Rather than saying the other person sat out in his car, we could say, well, I'll make room on the seat for you if you want to sit with me. But if the culture of the day is such that you'll get ribbed for it, and people say, oh, well, you know we don't let the cleaner and the person on the bottom of the payroll sit in here. What are you doing? If that's too much, then maybe we could say, well, I know you're new. Maybe I could have smoker with you out in your car. Because in the end, mercy, the way that we live our Christian faith, will triumph over judgment through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. I'm going to um, have a final song, I believe. So um, I'll just stand out of the way over there. And we'll, if we can, stand and sing to the glory of God. And then uh, I'll close.